0: i Amos chapter 7, 1 through 9. This is what the Lord, sovereign Lord, showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the second crop was coming up, when they stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you to stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This would not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam.
1: Thank you, Francis. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Amos 7, we're going to try to cover that whole chapter. No, we will not be here until it snows. If it does, in fact, snow. You know, um, real quick, um, in Amos' little prophecy he gives words of doom. That's kind of what a description is. And if you've been with us as we started, it feels really doomsy if we're reading Amos. I mean, if you go back and start again in chapter 1 and verse 1, you might be worn out by the time you get to end of chapter 2, because it really is an ominous, foreboding, doomsday sort of message. And then something happens in chapter 7. The words that Amos is given to give to Israel now turns to things Amos sees and there are a few visions he sees starting with the two actually the three that Francis read about in chapter 7 and so now we move from words to describe what the people have done to visions uh, that Amos is given of what's now going to happen because the people have refused the Lord. That sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Well, it is. Would you pray with me? Lord God, forgive us when we put our fingers in our ears for our resistance to your words. Forgive us when we prefer propagandists to prophets, wolves to witnesses, and prosperity preachers to purveyors of grace. And when we make claims for ourselves that do not align with those you make for us, forgive us. We need look no further than to Jesus for what is true, for He is. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing. In your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Who doesn't love a good courtroom scene in a movie? I mean, well done, of course. Not the, you know, silly ones, but a a really good one, you know, uh, where everyone is on the edge of their seat. You're waiting for the testimony from a witness. You want to know, are they finally going to get a, a confession, or is there going to be enough evidence to convict? So let's play a little bit of movie trivia were I to give you my best Jack Nicholson rendition or impersonation, and I offered you the line, you can't handle the truth. What movie would we be watching? A few good men, yes, a few good men. Reading Amos 6 and 7, I I couldn't help but reach back and reread those last verses, last several verses of of chapter 7 and not think of that climactic scene where Lieutenant Caffey risked his future to get the colonel to admit and justify that he had ordered an action that took a serviceman's life. And since the Super Bowl is this evening, and some of you may have never seen that movie all the way back in 1992, the long shot move that Caffey decided to play was like the offensive coordinator sending a play into Mahomes on fourth and long, and Mahomes hits Kelsey for a touchdown. That's the success. That's the setting. That's the intensity of the moment. Well, Nicholson's line, "You can't handle the truth," is the one that many remember. In fact, if you Google it, I mean, there'll be just hundreds of people replaying those clips. The, the the real import of the scene, the the real thing that happens that really we probably should have paid attention to then and pay attention to now, is when, after his admission that he ordered the code red that resulted in the death of Santiago, he looks around wondering, what did I do wrong? Well, I, I was just doing my job. He was puzzled. He was bum He was, what? Why is that testimony wrong? See, the colonel felt that he was above the law, the soldier's life was expendable, and he could do what he wanted. Because he had told himself, he understood himself as having the privilege to do so. And at this point, we have to ask, like, which is it? Does art imitate life? Or does life imitate art? Not a few years after Sorokin's movie made uh, is his play. uh, Sorokin wrote the play that became the movie. Just a few years after the the movie, a a couple of Christian writers came out. Brian Walsh and Richard Middleton wrote a little book titled, The Truth is Stranger Than It Used to Be. Any quibble with that today? I mean, I doubt they imagined then that today we would hear people tell us that truth is considered to be in the eye of the holder. Uh, Truth, we are told, is in the eye of the holder. You have your truth. I have my truth. Everyone gets to have their truth. So truth is now not something that we can count on. It's something that we get to determine ourselves. And when truth is in the eye of the holder, the truth, Jesus, becomes a tool rather than someone to know. And here's the deal. If we're taking Amos seriously and we're trying to hear it in 2024, we have to admit that God's people are not immune to the temptation to hold their own truth. Brian Zahn, new pastors in St. Joe's, Missouri, had a new book come out. I, I don't know if this is in his new book, um, the, uh, but it, it's, it's likely. He, he wrote this, When the church tries to press Jesus into service as a mascot for a political agenda, this does great harm to the reputation of the church. Now, here's what we need to kind of think. Now, let's move that one backward some millennia and just know that it is this very thing that harmed Israel's reputation. They had no idea that Jesus would be born some centuries later, but the same reality applies. When the truth for Israel came to be held in the eye of the holder, it ruined their reputation as God's people. So listen, I don't know if Sorokin, uh, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right. You can email me and let me know. But I don't know if Sorokin ever read Amos. But I will tell you, it's not hard to hear the resonances. So so whether he read Amos before writing his play that made it to the big screen, I'm convinced that Amos is not read often today. It bears remembering that what we have here in Amos, what what we know to be the Hebrew Scriptures, that is the, the Jews or Jewish Bible, that we later claim as the Old Testament, we us Christians, is the very Bible Jesus and his contemporaries read, or in some cases didn't. Now this is important. This is really important because they're able to mine what we call the Hebrew Scriptures to determine that God is giving a promise that they're anticipating will come. When they read their Bible, they read from Genesis to Malachi. They didn't have Matthew to Revelation. So they're paying attention to everything Amos says because Amos is calling attention to the character of God's people to what they are doing or are not doing. And this is terribly, terribly important. Many may have read it, but some did not take care to pay attention to the warnings of Amos. And and we need to remember that our resistance to the truth, more importantly today to Jesus, the truth, leaves us to face the idols that we have made. That is, when we put our fingers in our ears and don't hear what the Lord says to us in His Scriptures, when we close our eyes to the visions the prophets have been given, we, we are exposing to the world our idols, and therefore we are cheapening the reputation of the church. So take Amaziah. We, we, we probably could seize on him. He's the priest. Now, in the scriptures, the priest has a role. The priest's role is to represent God to the, the the people to God. Priest offers sacrifice for the people. The priest intercedes for the people. The priest is the one who presents the people to God. The prophet represents God to the people. So you've got Amos representing God to the people, that is Israel, and then you've got Amaziah who is at Bethel, and Bethel is the primary worship center for the northern kingdom. So Amaziah's responsibility is to present the people to God. That's what he's supposed to do. Amaziah is supposed to do that. But when he began hearing Amos's words, he put his fingers in his ear. And he gives an excuse. It's there in chapter 7, the latter part. And he says this to King Jeroboam, the land is not able to bear all his words. In other words, he's not saying Amos talks too much. He's saying that the picture that Amos is painting about Israel's future is so heavy, so weighty, so doom-filled that if we keep talking like that, we just can't take it anymore. And then... When he's finished telling King Jeroboam about Amos' meddling, he turns to Amos and says, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. So, remember, Amos has been giving Israel God's words. And when we get to chapter 7, we're, we're given to see what Amos saw, and now he's telling the people, here is what is coming. And when Amos is giving the truth, when Amos says, in essence, you can't handle the truth, he's not trying to cover some divine misdeed. Instead, he is... Lieutenant Caffey, trying to say, here's the case against Israel. He is the lawyer, if you will, attempting to show that there's not enough evidence in Israel to be convicted as the people of God. You with me? So, so that's really what's going on. He is giving God's words and he's giving God's vision, and essentially he's saying, I can't find an ounce of proof, Your Honor, that these people are who they say they are. Now, this is where, you know, a footnote would be good and it probably would make the sermon a whole lot longer, but we'll risk it. And that is the one thing that happens today, one thing that we grapple with today is this thing called self-identification. What that means is is we are given now to construct our identity who we are. And so we we don't really call that into question because I'm telling you who I am. It, It doesn't matter if that's really who I am, but I'm telling you who I am. And so when we hear surveys out there about people's opinions about everything from the, the weather to their, their governmental preferences to their religious preferences, one of the key things they're talking about is how do you self-identify? How do you identify yourself? Well, I'm sitting there, and I'm on the phone with a, interv- with a, with a pollster, or I'm filling out one online, or, or I've, one's come in the mail. I'm sitting there, and because of self-identification, I get to tell them the best vision of me that I want anyone to understand. And it doesn't matter if I'm a cad, a coward, or, you know, just nearly a hero. I get to tell people about me, what I want them to think about me. It doesn't matter if that's me or not. It doesn't matter if I can give any proof that that's my character, my nature, my quality. It doesn't matter. And so now, every time you see a poll, you probably, I I know I'm meddling, but Amos meddled a little bit too. Every time you see a poll, you probably should question it because chances are someone is giving an opinion based on a vision of themselves that's totally untrue. It's just kind of where we are. Young people would know that as Instagramming. I want you to see the best of me, even if I'm not. And I say young people, it's the old people who do that on Facebook. Young people don't get on Facebook. Just old people, us old people from time to time. And we probably should stay off all of it anyway, but that's another meddling bit. Amos is telling the people of God that them being named the people of God is not their responsibility. It's not their purview. They don't get to say, hey, look at us, we're the people of God. They're not the ones naming themselves. And what God is saying, you don't get to name yourself. Now let me tell you how that's good news, right? Because some of us grow up in places and in spaces where what everyone tells us is all the wrong news. And We live our lives been given all that wrong news, all those wrong pictures about us, what someone thinks about us, what we start internalizing, and we think that about ourselves, and then we spend the rest of our lives, once it dawns on us that they don't get the right to do that, it takes the rest of our lives trying to get out from underneath all that. Here's the good news. God is the one who names us. And I don't mean that somehow your parents were asleep one night, God gave them a vision, your name's going to be Todd. Not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is is God's the one who determines his love for you. You don't determine that. And guess what? I don't get to determine God's love for you, that is, if I want him to love you. I don't get to decide that. I don't get to decide that if you don't have my, share my politics, you don't share my economics, you don't share my social position, you don't share my habits, you don't share my likes, my dislikes, I don't get to decide that if you don't measure up to me, God can't possibly love you. I don't get to do that. God names God's own people. We don't, that's not us. But I have to tell you, if you flip on the television You can hear lots of people quoting lots of Scripture telling you exactly who deserves what. And the people that get left out are the people that always get left out. Always. Always. So here's what's interesting about this Amaziah character. When when Amaziah um, speaks to uh, Amos, to tell him where he should go. He's saying, if you understand the weight of it. He was probably not using language that you would find appropriate here this morning. But that's what was going on. Amaziah was telling Amos where to get off and where to go. Okay? And in his doing that, he took two items very familiar with Israel the land, and the temple. And in the northern kingdom, remember by this time you had Israel and her estranged brothers and sisters in Judah, and the place of worship in the northern kingdom was at Bethel. It was so named because both Abraham and his grandson Jacob had an experience and encounter with the Lord, and they named the place House of God. Okay, you with me? Stand with me? That was why it was named Bethel. They had heard from God at that place. And then at that place in the northern kingdom was where they gathered for the temple. Amaziah's responsibility, present the people to God at Bethel, the house of God, in the place, the temple of God. But that's not what Amaziah told Amos. You look at it. It's right there. That's not what Amaziah told Amos. Amaziah said, "Listen, don't you come here because this is the king's sanctuary and this temple is the king's kingdom." In other words, in other words, the the thing that Amaziah was doing was supplanting the history of Israel where God met the patriarchs to say you're going to be my people and through you i'm going to bless the entire world of people and they had turned that around and made it king jeroboam's this is king jeroboam the second city this is king jeroboam's temple you 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 see that they took the very artifacts that pointed to the history of israel And God's activity with them and turned them into a political house for the king. We still have to ask, is it art that imitates life? Or does life imitate art? It's the temple's kingdom. The temple of the kingdom. So rather than it being the temple of the Lord, it's now the kingdom's temple. Amaziah was giving God's truth to Israel, and Israel's priest was helping his people by putting his fingers in his ears. You know what you did when you had na 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 Am I hearing you right? You remember that? I mean, that's essentially what Amaziah is doing. Amos is giving the word of the Lord. The priest who's to present the people to God has put his fingers in his ears and says nobody should listen to him. We don't have time to go into the fact and the reality that Amos was actually a. a Uh, animal herder husbander who raised uh, cattle and and he took care of figs he he wasn't of the professional class of prophets and so when amaziah told him to go do his job elsewhere he's like wait a minute that this i'm just doing what for this moment i'm pressed into service to do quick side note you don't have to be a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, a missionary to do what God wants us all to do. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a salary. You don't have anything. When God presses you to say, hey, there's someone you should express my love to, you don't need to go get permission. You don't need permission to do the very things that God wants us all to do. Displacing God with our favorite political agenda is both a fool's errand and a modern idol. But if we're reading Amos carefully, it's not a new phenomenon. Hear me? This isn't like we're saying, oh, let's look at what's going on today. This is our human situation. We are always and forever looking for the power to alter those places where God has shown up and said, here I am. And you're my people. And what we want to do is always say, oh great, God gave me a piece of land and God gave me a place to worship. Now let's do it the way we want to. That is not new. I mean, listen, I've told you now repeatedly, this is seventh chapter. This probably seven sermons in Amos. We've got chapter eight and chapter nine to go. And thank goodness we got the end of chapter nine. Amen? I mean, it's where the hope lies. But till we get there, this is pretty difficult. We are bristle at the words of doom offered by Amos. And we seem to be com- uh, uh, with them that we completely ignore, just like Israel did, that without the relationship with God, without the relationship with Yahweh, there would be no land and there would be no temple. In other words, retelling their history as though they're the one who did everything is a way to bracket God out of the equation. And if you bracket God out of the equation, what that means is there, you don't have a land, you don't have a temple, and frankly, you aren't a people without it. But what they find here, what they find in this, this story is that God determined to have a people. God doesn't need a land. God doesn't need a temple. God determined to have a people. Now, listen, if you're here and, and you've never felt special a day in your life, that's ti- it's time right now. Because God determined to have a people. That would include you. God determined to have a people he would love, who, who could trust him, who would care for him, and frankly, if we listen to Amos carefully, who will bear with you when you put your fingers in your ears. We all need somebody like that, don't we? Wives are saying amen all over the room. All over the room. See, Jesus told the inquiring woman in John 4, He he said, to her, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God was telling <laughs> through Jesus that it didn't matter the land nor the building. So listen. We are living in a day where people are trying to stake out a place for God at 1600 Pennsylvania, North Lincoln, and on Main Street. And when we do, we are missing that God's place isn't in any of those. Instead, it said God's place is where St. Patrick said it should be. Ready? Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, and Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. God is telling his people through the prophet, it is not the land nor the place I want, it's you. It's you. Now, listen, (laughs) I got to tell you, uh, God's ongoing communication to a people with their fingers in their ears is love. God's ongoing communication. I mean, listen, we make make God out to be this this very hard-to-get-along-with person, but it was God's prophet Ezekiel who said this. You ready? Now, he's speaking to his people. Here's what he says. Say to them... As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Here it is, O oh, house of Israel. <laughs> we spend more time so concerned about somebody else than us. We we spend so much time trying to get everyone else to get their ethics and their religion right and pay little attention to our own. Little attention to our own. re, re- Reading chapter 6 left me thinking of absurdities, like with the children. <laughs> I have to tell you, it has stayed with me since I read it last week. <laughs> Do you plow the sea with ox? Like, I mean, come on, you're, you're smart people. We're all smart people. We're all at least smart enough to know that, does, that doesn't even make sense, right? The kids knew it. Surely we adults know that this is silliness. It's intended to be an absurdity. It's intended to get the question. So here's God's charge to his people in, verse, in, in chapter six. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock. And calves from the stall. Ready? But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now the callback is to Egypt. Where God heard and oppressed people commanded to make bricks without straw. They didn't have anything. It had all been taken. They were oppressed. They were pressed on. And they were suffering. And now, when they have their own land, they have their own place to worship, they have their own building to worship in, they are fat and sassy on their beds of ivory, and they don't care about the people who've never been cared about. It's it's nothing short of also a call back to Nathan the prophet who tells King David, Hey, let me tell you about this guy who had a hundred sheep. And he was fixing to throw him a great big feast. And there was a guy, his neighbor only had one. And instead of killing one of his, he went and got his neighbors. That's the imagery. That's the imagery. Those who have power and those who have authority and those who have wealth are loving their ivory bed and their couches. All the while, the people who have great need are going without. You have ruined Joseph. God who heard the cries of, of people who were oppressed are now the ones also, many who are suffering. Amos called out the absurdities of God's people identifying as God's people because they weren't doing God's things. And so it was absurd for them to say, oh, look at us. We are God's people, all the while they're not doing God's things. So no wonder the divine poetry includes, does one plow the sea with oxen. Let me tell you, the temptation for me early on, thinking through this passage in this text and what maybe God is speaking to me about, it would be easy for me to create a list of contemporary absurdities that follow along this pattern. I mean, a 30-minute news segment could have given us a five-hour sermon listing all the absurdities. But you know what the most absurd thing about all of this is? Is the reality that though God's people resist the word of the Lord, God continues to speak to them. You see, we... Emphasize the absurdity of self identifying in ways that we have no proof that we are God's people. But the greatest absurdity is that God still keeps loving us. That's the absurdity. So, what happens in beginning in chapter 7 to the end is something that hasn't happened in Amos to this point. He tells Amos, prophesy to my people my people all the things that Amos has already said in those words of doom about Israel and what they'd done what they hadn't done the visions that are now coming that, that give an expression to their choice to prefer to die than to respond in love to the Lord God still calls them did you hear it My people. If you don't find the absurdity in that, let's meet in the foyer after we're through. We'll work on that a little bit more. But the absurdity that with fingers in our ears resisting the words of the Lord, God still calls us my people. That God continues with us, is attentive enough, even though he doesn't stop the consequences of our resistance and pride, is God's good news absurdity. But he yet loves us. And here's the reality, folks. We can't handle the truth. It's just too unbelievable. And it's too unbelievable when we start to have conversations with folks that we really want to know Jesus, to to trust that there's a God who loves them and can reshape their very understanding of themselves because he calls you my people. It's just too hard to believe. We can't handle the truth. But guess what? We don't get to decide the truth. We We don't get to decide the truth. It's still true. It's God's gospel, good news, goods. Brian's on. He finished his description of reality that began this way. When the church tries to press Jesus into service as a mascot for a political agenda, this does great harm to the reputation of the church. He goes on. But, strangely enough, it does almost no harm to the reputation of the church of Jesus himself. People intuitively know that Jesus is better than that. And that's the truth we handle. That God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us all our sins and made us his people. It's not just about forgiveness, but it's not less than. It is that we have been made his people people. So our prayer today might well be having heard Amos, may God remove the fingers from our ears. Would you pray with me?